Today, I'm speaking with Florence Williams. I was introduced to Florence by my friend, Rhett Taylor. And as I reached out to Florence and learned more about her work, it turned out we had quite a few mutual friends in Boulder. So it was awesome to get to talk to her and make those connections and dig into her most recent work, which is The Nature Fix, why nature makes us happier, healthier, and more creative. So in this episode, we got to talk about Florence's past growing up in New York City and how she was able to connect with nature as a kid and get out uh, of the city with her father. We also spoke about how many poets and philosophers and inventors uh, sought nature to do some of their most important thinking. We also got to talk about this conflict between science and poetry in nature. We all kind of know that Nature's great for us, but we still need these scientific uh, backings to kind of make it policy and make it acceptable on a wider range. We talk about various countries she traveled to and which countries have either adopted policies for getting out into nature or just done it as a recommendation and how that fits into the population's ethic uh, and their caring for nature. We talk about micro stressors and how all these little distractions and noises can add up to uh, significant stress despite us being unaware of it. We talk a bit about Florence's writing process and how she sees doing her work. And we also talk about what she's up to now. She's got some really cool projects out there, uh, including a new podcast with Outside Magazine. Uh, which I suggest everyone checks out. I'll include that in the show notes. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Florence Williams. So I'm here with Florence Williams. Florence, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. You bet. Nice to be here. So for those that may not be... Um, familiar with your work. How do you kind of describe who you are and what you do? I am a science journalist and I I would say I mostly focus on writing about the sort of hidden connections between human health and the natural world. Awesome. Yeah, I just finished your um, book, The Nature Fix, which was awesome. I picked it up at the Boulder Bookstore here in Boulder. Um, and got to go through all these different chapters of um, inquiry that we'll dive into. But I thought a fun place to start would be a question that a mutual friend of ours um, hinted to me that I thought could be a fun place to start. And she said, ask Florence what she thinks of pack-a-rafts. And for <laughs> those that don't know what a pack-a-raft is, it's a small four-pound kayak kind of setup. So what do you what is what are your thoughts on packerafts? Um, well, um, first of all, the company would probably want you to pronounce it packraft. <laughs> packraft. Packraft. And, okay, um, got it. It's confusing because the, the model I have is called an alpaca, okay. so um, it is a little confusing with the names. But yeah, packraft. One word. Um, yeah, they do. I think mine actually weighs probably about six pounds because I've measured it or I've weighed it. 
Um, I love my pack raft. <laughs> it's like incredibly versatile and lightweight and strong. And um, I can take it down, you know, white water. I can take it on flat water. I can stuff a sleeping bag into it. Um, and it's great for wilderness trips. It's great for sort of day trips. I love it. Awesome. <laughs> so you're a fan to say the least. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, people have different favorite landscapes, <laughs> you know, or different happy places. And mine is definitely a river. Mm-hmm. So I try to run rivers whenever I can. And um, sometimes I do it in my pack raft. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I thought we could kind of start rewinding the clock a bit. And I know in your book, you mentioned growing up in New York City. Um and I'm kind of interested in this paradox of growing up in New York City and your, you know, obsession with nature um, and kind of tying into that your connection with your father and kind of these um, excursions that you went out on as a kid. Can you kind of speak to your childhood in New York City and how nature kind of became a, a love from childhood? Sure. I, yeah, I've always had a kind of split personality, I guess, between, you know, being a city girl and being a nature girl. Um, I did grow up in New York City, but my parents were divorced and my dad was a total wilderness guy. And so every summer I, I would spend the summers with him. Um, he had a van <laughs> and we would load up the van, put some canoes on the roof and drive out west usually. Hmm. Once we drove up to Canada, to the Boundary Waters, once we drove down south. But usually we would drive out west with these canoes and we would spend like, you know, four or five or six weeks um, camping and canoeing. So my friends in New York definitely thought that was strange. Um, And I would say, you know, some of my river friends (laughs) thought growing up on the Upper West Side was strange. Um, and, And it was a little confusing for me, I think. You know, I was like, well, who am I? Am I a wilderness person or am I a city person? And, you know, eventually I realized, you know, actually it's okay to be both. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. What did your dad do? Was he able to kind of take you guys off for those trips with his work? Or where do you think he found that kind of call for? He worked for himself. He was um, um, a demographer and sociologist, a consultant. And Mm. he just really made it a priority uh, to spend time with me, um, you know, in the summers. And so because of that, I never went to sleep boy camp or, you know, anything like that. I really had my own private <laughs> adventures, uh, with my dad and they were really special. They were really fun. Yeah. It's, it's cool to see in the book, kind of the through line of, you know, you find a couple of these quotes from him, of him kind of getting his mind away from, from the rest of the world out in nature. And you definitely see that, um, come through in your writing and kind of your own exploration into that so that was a cool a cool connection to see and and read about um I'm also curious how how journalism became a part of your life were you always writing as a kid was that always something that you aspired to be yes I did I I was one of those nine-year-olds who sort of knew what I wanted to do when I grew up and uh, (laughs) I knew I wanted to write I didn't know it would be journalism um, but I did become the editor of my high school paper, and then I worked for the campus magazine in college. Um, I had internships at magazines in the summers, and then I got hired um, right out of college by High Country News, which is based in Pan, yeah. Colorado, 
which is a great place to sort of get my training. They covered 10 states in the West. It was really all environmental journalism, which I was really interested in. Um, and, uh, and from there, I, I started freelancing. I did get a creative writing degree from the University mm. of Montana in creative nonfiction. Um, okay. I, I just, uh, you know, sort of kept at it. Um, I, I worked for a lot of, I worked for Outside Magazine a lot, became a contributing editor there, and I'm still, I'm still a contributing editor there. Um, mm. And then I started writing books, which I love doing because it's a way to kind of go deep yeah. into a topic and really sit with it for a long time. Although I, I do like the sort of short attention span of journalism. Um, mm. but the nice thing about the books that I've written is that they're really multidisciplinary and the topics are really sort of broad so that I can really sort of each chapter is sort of a whole new thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's, I feel like you did kind of the heavy lifting where there's all this science research brought up, but as the, as the reader, you really get to enjoy this story of your exploration through it. Like it's kind of this, um, you know, it reminds me of some of Michael Pollan's books of um, this kind of science inquiry with personal exploration that I thought was was awesome as a reader to engage with. I felt like you did the heavy lifting of the science and and I got to enjoy the story. Um, that, that was really fun to read. <laughs> but I, I did have a lot of fun too because it was a journey. You know, both, both, both of my previous two books have been sort of journeys where I've tried to learn something and um, have gone to a lot of places, interviewed a lot of scientists, um, you know, again, across many disciplines. So it was super fascinating for me. Yeah. Um, what did you think? I mean, we're talking about The Nature Fix, and the full title is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. What did you think the book was going to be going into it? And how do you feel that changed um, coming out the other side? Well, it started actually with an assignment from Outside Magazine. And my editor said, you know, go write about nature and the brain. You know, what's the science there? What does nature do to us? So, I, I mean, I really have to thank my editor for that. But it, it turns out that when I got that assignment, I had just moved from Boulder, Colorado to Washington, D.C. Uh, and I had lived in the Rocky Mountains for 20 years at that point. So it was, a, it was a pretty big shock to my system, even though I'd grown up in New York. It had been a long time since I'd lived there as a kid. And um, I, I felt my nervous system really change, you know, in Washington, uh, living in a big city, you know, the noise pollution, <laughs> all the asphalt, the sort of um, greater difficulty in, in just getting to nature and getting to nature trails. And so it was serendipitous timing because I was also curious about these things going on in my own body and brain. It's like, why do I, why do I feel so anxious? You know, why do I feel stressed out? Why am I depressed? Why am I not sleeping well? Um, you know, what does the science have to say about, you know, quote unquote, nature deficit disorder? Mm. Um, you know, is that a real thing? And so, uh, and, and outside just said, go find some science. And so at that point I had a fair <laughs> amount of research because I wanted to report about science that was actually taking place in real time so that I could sort of witness it and watch it and participate in it. And so, um, it, you know, I, I started just finding out who was doing the research and it turns out that there was some research actively going on in Japan. And so I said to my editors, I was like, well, I think I need to go to Japan. And they were like, <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> what a great pitch. Far away, but okay, go for it. So, so off I went and it was, you know, really interesting and eye opening. And then I started to wonder, or I guess I started to hear about other science and other research going on, you know, especially in Scandinavia, um, but also in South Korea, also, um, you know, in parts of the U.S. And then I thought, okay, I think there might be a book here. Um, and and the, I mean, the way really, I think pretty much all nonfiction writers work is that we, we spend a lot of time doing the research before we even, you know, sell the book. So, yeah. I mean, before we even start writing the book, like to even just write the book proposal, you have to have a very thorough sense of what you're going to be writing about. So I wouldn't say the material really changed a lot over the course of the book because I spent a year basically writing that book proposal. Yeah, that's cool to hear. That makes sense. I think the, um, <laughs> I love the pitch of flying to Japan to your editor. That's an awesome, like, well, the science is here, so I got to go to Japan. That's, that's like a, a dream job. Yeah. That sounds that's amazing. Like the old days of magazine journalism. Yeah. <laughs> I think those kinds of assignments are a lot harder to get now, actually. Yeah. They're like, just Google it. Right. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> just text yeah. somebody. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, something I really enjoyed was learning about all these various poets and philosophers and inventors that really felt nature was pivotal to their, um, to their experience. And I thought, I mean, it was, it was awesome to see. It was like, you know, from the transcendentalists like Whitman and Emerson to Wordsworth and Jane Austen and Nikola Tesla, like it was across the board, nature kind of had this um, important piece to their creativity. Was there anyone in your research that, that stood out to you, like individuals within that regard? Well, I was really moved to write about Wordsworth, I guess. Um, I mean, I had taken romantic poetry in college and, you know, I was just sort of fond of some of his poems. But I think it's easy to kind of dismiss the romantic poets as being, you know, kind of like the early incarnation of the hippies, you know, and they were just out there smelling the daffodils. But <laughs> I started to drill down a little more, you know, into his story and who he was. Um, I saw that he was really kind of self-medicating, you know, with nature. Mm. Um, he was orphaned by both of his parents, you know, before he was I think nine years old. Um, had a pretty rough childhood, some trauma. And, you know, for him and for so many people, right, being outside in nature was sort of how to survive and, and how to kind of get through that and how to have a fulfilling life. Um, he ended up walking you know, tens of thousands of miles <laughs> in his lifetime over the fens and the marshes. And he actually composed poetry while he walked, which is really interesting. Um, and Thoreau composed a lot of work too. And, and even Aristotle, I mean, a lot of these, these writers and thinkers and poets and philosophers, they talk about how the act of writing or yeah, how the act of walking is really um, integrated with the act of walking. Um, which kind of makes sense, you know, if you're someone who's a walker, it's where, where you really start to um, kind of leave the everyday world behind a little bit. You leave behind your to-do list and pretty soon you start to kind of free associate, you start to have creative thoughts. So I was really interested in that. And I thought that Wordsworth just symbolized that really well. Yeah, that was an interesting takeaway. Um, kind of the paradox between how 
or the difference between how people saw walking, right? Like a couple of them were felt walking was the means to their thinking. Like it was when they did their thinking and some were like, walking is the only time I can get away from thinking. Like, I think that's uh relatable to a lot of people and whether you know, someone... I think he walked like four hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't he like at a minimum? He was like a minimum four hours <laughs> and hopefully more like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, there were women writers too. You know, I don't want to yeah. them. I mean, for a lot of women, walking was kind of the only time they could get out of the house and sort of, you know, find some freedom from domestic chores. And uh, it was, you know, somewhat permissible, especially for, you know, I would say upper class women and upper middle class women, um, you know, to take some fresh air and exercise and, um, you know, also find find some freedom in, in the sort of fresh air. Yeah, that was really cool to learn about Wordsworth's. It was Wordsworth's sister, right? Yeah, was, I'd, I'd never, um, I'd never heard that. That was a really. Um... She walked with him um, almost yeah. all the time, and and in fact, she she edited him also very extensively, and probably contributed much more to his poetry um, than than is recognized. Yeah, that was awesome. That was like a, that was definitely a takeaway that I'd never heard. I think that was really cool that that was, that was part of the book, and Jane Austen too, with her with her yeah, um, contribution. Yeah, that was that 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 leads me to kind of my next question, which is kind of this this conflict between science and poetry. There's kind of this tension between micro specialization and the macro kind of all encompassing experience of nature. Um, At one point you write, I understand the intellectual compulsion to break apart the pieces of nature and examine them on by one, both interesting and troubling. I understand it's the way of science, the way science typically works. To understand a system, you have to understand the parts, find the mechanism, and put your flag on a piece of new ground. The poets would find this nonsense. It's not just the smell of cypress or the sound of birds or the color of green that unlocks the pathway to health in our brains. We're full sensory beings, or at least we once were built to be. Isn't it possible that the only way that the that it's only when you open all the doors literally and figuratively that the real magic happens i thought that was like uh, to me that was like the 50,000 foot view <laughs> takeaway in this book where i was like okay there's all these bits of science to break down and understand how 5 minutes of listening to birds can help us relieve our stress and then there's also this like wait there's so much missing <laughs> from the actual experience of being in nature that may not be picked up from various scientific explorations. Um, how do you think of that tension between those two kind of positions? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, intuitively, so many of us know that we just like being outside, you know, or that we get some good ideas when we're out for a walk or, you know, we sleep better. Um, it puts us in a better mood. And we know these things. Um, and that's where you get the sort of understanding that we are full sensory beings, you know, and like, what's the point of sort of breaking it down into little pieces. But we also live in a really evidence-based culture, right? And in order to, I think, have these ideas become accepted and taken to scale, you know, in order for insurance, health insurance companies to, you know, reimburse doctors for prescribing nature. Right. Um, 
order for schools to increase recess, you know? Right. Um, that Thoreau quote is not going to cut it. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, it, it might for, you know, the Waldorf school, <laughs> but um, it's, it's not for, you know, major institutions of like, you know, medical education. Um, so, so I understand, you know, why the evidence can be helpful. And frankly, you know, if, if, if that's what it takes, then okay, let's, let's provide it because the end goal here is too important. If we really want to change the way people are living their lives, the way kids are you know, growing up and, and hopefully reconnecting to the natural world, um, we need to change the institutions, right? It's not just going to happen, you know, because some families decide it's nice to have a picnic. Totally. Yeah. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in really like changing the way people interact with nature on a large scale. Totally. That's kind of a debate I always have with friends is like not necessarily relying on human goodwill to do what's best for us, but really designing systems that incentivize our best behavior, Um, which to your point, like it takes data for systems to be created like it's not just going to happen through um yeah through like the sometimes naive uh kind of imagination of of a boulder right of kind of just thinking the world will fall into place in the best possible way it definitely takes that science and the science is there like based on your book there's a lot of really good work being done in that field yeah Um, more all the time actually yeah yeah um so kind of uh, touching on some of these countries that have adopted different um, policies, it kind of go, hearkening off what you just said, do you think, do you think policy is a necessity for, you know, let's take forest bathing, for an example, do you think that's a, a thing that should be done through policy or do you think a recommendation from some institution is, is enough? I'm kind of thinking of, you know, Finland and, and South Korea um, with those national policies. I don't think you can really it's very hard to legislate human behavior. Yeah. Um, I think providing incentives and providing information and then changing the way institutions operate. I think that's really the way to go. Um, I mean, sure. I would love to see policies change in terms of um, recess, for example. <laughs> yeah. Now, right now, I think when schools are back in session um, and where I live in Washington, DC, only 10% of kids were actually getting the recommended levels of recess. Um, and that's ridiculous. You know, I mean, kids need to run around, they need fresh air. And in fact, they, they learn better, right. When they're, when they're able to do that as the research from Finland and, and other parts of Scandinavia have shown. Uh, so in that sense, policies can be helpful, but I think, you know, overall, um, you know, it, the, these kinds of connections to the natural world need to be sort of baked in, I think, to a lot of institutions, um, including, you know, urban design, urban planning. Um, you know, we need better parks in all neighborhoods in urban areas, you know, not just the wealthy ones. We need to improve access. Um, these, these, these are policy questions in a way, but they're really about much more than policy. You know, they're about infrastructure and, um, and they're about design and uh, they're about systems. Yeah. And it sounds like culture to some extent where it's kind of a, you know, the ethic of conservation and um, caring for the natural environment is part of the society. Like it's, it's from childhood that's baked into your understanding of the world in a way. 
Yeah. And of course, that's another kind of ulterior motive I have, you know, in writing a book like this, which is ostensibly about the benefits to humans. <laughs> but right. I think the reason so many conservation groups, you know, are interested in this material is that, you know, it's, it's a very compelling argument um, for why we should care about nature. Uh, yeah. Because once again, you know, we're humans and we, we tend to like to do things in our, in our own self-interest. But the ulterior motive is really what's also, you know, good for the planet. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I found, um, you know, working with a Norwegian company and, and Norwegians um, generally have, have a really unique, or, or maybe not unique, maybe it's, maybe it's um, ubiquitous in Scandinavia, but compared to the U.S. perspective, there's a totally different understanding of nature and experiences that we have in nature, they've really put vocabulary to. Like right. This concept of free let's leave and feeling at one with nature, you know, Americans may try and, and describe that in a paragraph or tell their friend how stoked they were skiing. But like it goes back centuries in Norway of how you interact with wilderness and how it makes you feel. Um, it just seems baked into the culture in a very different way than I think we have in the U.S. Um, yes. Yeah. Have you found have you found a certain culture to kind of resonate with you and your um travels and and research as far as their connection with with nature uh you know i mean you mentioned um norway i i did spend some time in finland which i really loved i mean i think i think the finnish people are more connected to nature because they more recently sort of lived on the land you know finland was one of the last european countries to sort of industrialize and a lot of Finnish people today still have parents or grandparents um, who live on the farm. And, you know, they have these little like country huts <laughs> that they go to for their very long vacations. Um, and they're not, you know, they're not fancy country homes. They're, they're really pretty modest, but um, so many people are able to experience that because it's a, it's a very kind of homogeneous, like middle-class country. And so there's a lot of access for everyone. Uh, which is really a lovely idea. And then, of course, there's also um, literally access on the land. Like, there's not a lot of public land, but anyone has permission to walk across people's private land. It's a whole different concept. That is so cool to me. I remember my Norwegian colleague saying that, and that anyone could camp on private property if it was in a certain distance of someone's home. It was such a different view. I think sometimes, you you know, you can't hunt. Uh, I think sometimes you can make a fire, but... But yeah. yeah, it's really a democratic concept of, you know, sort of our land is your land. <laughs> You're welcome yeah. to across it. Maybe not snowmobile across it, but you can walk yeah. across country ski across it. Um, you know, it's it's really lovely. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you see cultures who do that, and, and of course, one out of 10 kids attends like a, an outdoor preschool, which is an, also an amazing concept. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember all my Norwegian colleagues as well saying, you know, oh, we have a cabin up in the woods here. And like, I started to put together that everyone had a cabin in the woods. Like it was, it wasn't just like one of your friends has a cabin in Winter Park or Vail, but like everyone had a cabin that they all like retreated to. I was like, what? This is unreal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, totally. Um, So another part that I found interesting was uh, you mentioned a bit of Robert Sapolsky's work um, in kind of just a blurb in in one of the chapters. Um, 
And I think you talked a bit about micro stress and some of his research on micro stress. And I remember reading about him um, talking about how various stressors, uh, for example, the smell of trash could actually inform primates' behaviors and attitudes, you know, changing their outcome. You know, without trash, they did this action. With trash, they did this action, an aggressive action, for example. Can you kind of speak to these micro stressors and how things, you know, as little as a, a sound of a plane flying overhead can right. well, you kind just, of add up? I mean, one of my one of my major like pet peeves is uh, airplane noise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's a micro stressor. You know, our our nervous system hears a loud rumbling roar and responds the way a Paleolithic nervous system would. You know, it. Uh, increases our respiration and our heart rates and sort of prepares to like, you know, fight a beast basically. Um, and this happens even in our sleep. Like people think, oh, I, I, I'm so used to the sound of airplanes. It doesn't bother me at all. But if you actually, you know, put some biomonitors on that person while they're sleeping, you'll see their blood pressure go up um, when there's a plane passing overhead. And it turns out that those sort of micro stresses are cumulative um, and people who live under air, airplane path pathways, um, you know, sort of near, especially near airports and urban areas, they require more medication for anxiety. Um, they have um, higher risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, in children, they have greater learning disabilities, um, and they're behind on grade level for reading and writing. So, I mean, they're, the, the, the micro stresses really do add up. And I, and I think, you know, that's one thing that's so tricky about modern life is that we have so many of them. It's not that, that life was so easy, you know, on the veldt, um, right. you know, 10,000 years ago. It wasn't. It was, you know, it could be brutal, right? But, but I think as Robert Sapolsky and others have pointed out, we had ways of sort of recovering from stress because we lived communally, you know, with our kin groups and our friends. We looked at the sunset every night. We looked at the stars every night. We sat around the fire and sang songs. You know, we had these sort of wonderful ways of processing the stress. And so many of us in modern life actually don't have that. You know, we have sort of Netflix and we have Ben and Jerry's. That helps <laughs> a little bit, but it's not like, you know, these multi-times a day sort of stress recovery options um, that nature so easily provides. Yeah, it's it's so wild to me that that is cumulative, like you said, and that, you know, actions for which you thought may just be your own shortcomings may be the accumulation of various stressors that you may not be consciously aware of, whether that's, yeah, plane sounds or, or garbage cans or the smell of garbage juice in New York City, whatever it may be. I thought that was so, so fascinating that I think our general tendency is to be like, ah, I can't do it. I, I fell short because of my own volition. But there's all these various environmental factors that lead to decision-making and, and how we act out, out, out in the world. Um, yes, that's exactly right. And yet we're, we're also not really taught, you know, how to process the stress. Right. Um, you know, we're not really taught self-care or, you know, recovery or human connection. We're, we're not necessarily taught these things. We're taught, you know, how to be productive and how to get good grades and how to advance in our careers. And, um, yeah. 
and so so nature is actually I, I just think it's access to nature is sort of it's sort of an easy way you know if we can actually encourage people to feel more connected to nature to spend more time there you know you can still have your big job and you can still have your big to-do list but maybe this will help you sort of recover from it and at the end of the day you know feel like you're a nicer person to your family and feel like you can sleep better and also feel like you know maybe you can incorporate caring for each other and for the planet in the work that you do yeah yeah there's this scene that that um that you kind of paint of yourself dealing with kind of these sounds of planes going overhead as you try and write and just the the frustration of that did you find anything that was helpful or have you worked with friends that I'm sure I'm sure now that you've written this book friends are always like reaching out in various ways for tips and tricks I have, have their pandemic is really helpful I recommend it um yeah. I mean uh you know it's, it's reduced our airplane pollution <laughs> yeah dramatically I think it went to zero at one point uh, uh you know for I I can hear the birds now and I can, yeah. I can sleep past 5 30 in the morning it's amazing it's amazing um what, what what I think you know of course the pandemic is a terrible thing and but I think what it what it has taught us is that there are things we value um you know about feeling connected to nature and feeling connected to each other I think there's so many lessons that we've learned kind of this year um that I that I hope some of us will take with us um you know in, when the airplanes do come back at full tilt uh and they are already starting to uh, you know, there are things that I do. I mean, I, I do have noise-canceling headphones. Um, you know, sometimes if there's a leaf blower, you know, yeah. outside my window, there's always a leaf blower. It drives me crazy. Um, you know, I'll, I'll put my headphones on and I'll play some classical music or I'll play some bird song or whatever it is. Um, but, I, but I think it's important, actually, to, to make these efforts to try to mitigate the things that kind of irritate us in, in modern life because they really do add up. Yeah, that's great. Um, connected to kind of your your working process, um, do you have any approaches for, I know you're working on a project now and probably various deadlines and various stressors coming in on your on your world. How do you approach kind of the, the writing process and, and working and, you know, people talk about writer's block. I wouldn't consider myself a writer by any means. Um, but is that something you deal with and how do you approach sitting down to tackle a project like that? Well, you know, as a, as a journalist, um, I, I don't think I hold my writing as, as being too precious and I always have a deadline. So, you know, I think working journalists, you know, writer's block isn't really a big problem. It's like, you know, that piece is due next Wednesday <laughs> and, and you're going to turn it in whether it's terrible or not. And so you, you don't get too attached to like trying to write something that's perfect. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I think I just have a sort of professional approach to it. Um, not that it, not that things that I write are, are beautiful and perfect. They're not, but, um, I do love having a deadline. If I didn't have a deadline, it would be a whole different deal, but I, I, I definitely recommend <laughs> either self-imposing or, or working for someone who's going to give you a deadline. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right there with you. A little bit of incentive. It helps yeah. a lot. I've even noticed that since graduating from school, like deadlines and professors emailing me motivated me so much. And now, now that I don't have that system and pressure, it's yeah, a lot I mean, more self right. Fear and adrenaline will really help you be productive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then just remember to go into nature afterwards and, That's right. and relax. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, can you say anything about what you've been working on now, whether it's your book or, or articles or next adventures? Um, yeah. So I, I also spend some time in the audio space, um, as do you. And I, I've made a couple podcasts based on previous books, um, including one based on the three day effect. I mean, based on the nature fix called the three day effect, um, that's available on audible. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I've also done a number of sort of episodes and, and series for outside magazines podcast. And so I'm actually working on a new one that I'm calling love outside, which is sort of a meld of the New York times modern love column, uh, and the nature fix. So I'm looking at sort of human oh, wow. relationships as catalyzed, um, or sort of intensified by time outside. And we just launched our first episode um, last week, actually on Valentine's Day. And it's about um, a couple, they're strangers, but they, they meet while uh, having sort of a terrible climbing experience on Mount Rainier. Um, and they kind of fall in love in a snow cave. <laughs> no way. So I'm, wow. I'm interested, you know, I'm, I'm, I've just always been interested in, as I said, the connections between people and nature. So it just makes sense, I think, to look at human relationships and yeah. not just romantic relationships, but I'm interested in, um, you know, parent child relationships. I'm interested in friendships. I'm interested even in, you know, people's relationships with their pets potentially. Um, yeah. And how time outside has, you know, sort of influenced the way we interact with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed I've had so much more time outside given this pandemic, but yeah. my interaction with others is so limited and, it's been awesome to be able to work from home. And yet at the same time, I cannot wait to go into an office and just <laughs> be in the presence of others, even if I'm on my computer, just having people around. Um, yeah, it's been such a, a, a an amazing experience in, in some regards as far as getting outside and, and a bizarre one as far as just not seeing that many people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I recently saw an article, I think it was in The Atlantic, that hiking is actually really great for friendships. Huh. And it's, it's a great way to build friendships and sort of deepen them. Um, and I think, you know, this pandemic, if anything, you know, has taught us that the only way we can really see people is outside. Right. And, uh, and I think that, that there have been some lessons there too. You know, it is, it's a nice way to spend time with people. Totally. Go through a little bit of hardship together on Sanitas and you'll be uh, <laughs> good friends. <laughs> There's no hardship on Sanitas. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, as people run past me. Uh, yeah, the hardship is mental as far as my own shortcomings and running up Sanitas. Um, I, I would recommend putting, I mean, this won't go over well in Boulder, but, you know, putting down the watch, putting down the Garmin, putting down the GPS and, and actually really being present, you know, in the moment in nature. I think so many of us are trying to sort of maximize or optimize our time or our heart rate or our playlists and it, it it does really take away from the kind of restorative emotional aspects of being in the natural world um and i i would recommend at least you know leaving the garmin at home once in a while yeah that's funny you said that i went on a bike ride yesterday um kind of in anticipation of this interview and i usually toss my headphones on and it's either like some podcast or an audiobook maybe at double speed who knows um but oh that's a great way to relax <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> get my cadence with the with the talk no um no but i just i just decided to go you know forego it and i think um i think we've become so kind of habitually just taught or not taught but just just um through habit and through kind of this crazy dopamine hack that these devices have created to just pick them up put them on and then go and i think getting away from that is hard but i think it's um it's kind of childlike like i I remember not you know i never had headphones on as a child riding my bike and i kind of i noticed that yesterday just looking up and riding and maybe there are prairie dogs on boulder valley ranch or or little things that i i don't know i i I think it was a different experience that is certainly worthwhile but hard to pull away from and the science really supports that you know if you're if you're listening to something electronic you really actually miss a lot of visual cues where you are which i think is really interesting yeah. Um, and, and the science also shows that if you do want kind of stress reduction, if, if that is your goal, if you've had a stressful day or you're having a stressful week, um, you know, the more that you can actually tune in to all of your senses, um, just the, the quicker and the, and the more effective, um, that stress reduction is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good practice to get away from these things that I'm on all the time. Um, okay. Well, I want to wrap up here. I have a bit of a speed round if your game just a couple quick quick questions and quick answers um what are three things that people could do starting tomorrow to improve their happiness health and creativity through nature okay uh i would say one is to look for beauty so when you go outside well first of all go outside <laughs> that's right go outside <laughs> number two is when you're out there um actually look for beauty and, and we have to kind of remind ourselves to do this. It seems um, sort of strange because then like, oh, if I see something beautiful, I'll see it. But actually you see it more if you train yourself to look for it. So, you know, ask yourself, what are three beautiful things I can see on this walk? And then when you find them, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the shape of a tree or, you know, who knows, a cloud or a particular um, set of light, you know, against the sky. Hmm actually look at it for three breaths uh, and and see how that makes you feel. So that would be two. And then the other is I would say also really pay attention to your senses. And um, maybe I'll just pick one for since you only asked me for three, but um, smell. So find something to smell that smells good. Not a bad thing, but a good thing. So if you pass a pine tree, like a ponderosa, you know, Pick off a few pine needles, crumple them in your hand, and smell them, and see how that makes you feel. I love it. That's awesome. Three breath, three breaths, and some ponderosa pine. That'd be an awesome day. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, favorite river to run. Oh my gosh, how can there be a favorite? <laughs> um, right now, I'm thinking of the Yampa, which is the longest fully free flowing river um in colorado and maybe mm. one of the longest ones in the west i think um I, it was one of the first wilderness rivers i ran as a kid and i run it quite a few times as an adult so it has kind of a sentimental value for me as well as just being a beautiful lovely stretch nice what advice would you give your 24 year old self Ooh. Um, hmm, that's a good question. Um, take some time out. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, what should everyone keep in their car in the backcountry? Binoculars, a picnic blanket. <laughs> nice. <laughs> My girlfriend just got binoculars and I made so much fun of her for the first day until I got, until I took them out for a walk. And now I'm, uh, I'm in need of binoculars. They're the coolest <laughs> thing. <laughs> I thought they were so geeky, but they're so practical. You're maturing so nicely, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> She'll laugh at that. Um, what book would you recommend everyone read? Mm. It could be The Nature Fix. That's not supposed to be a, a shameless plug. <laughs> No, that would be too self-serving. I am reading a really delightful book right now that I am going to recommend because I'm also blurbing it, and I just love it. Um, It's called Diary of a Young Naturalist by Dara McElnulty, and he is a 16-year-old who lives in Ireland. He is an incredibly gifted naturalist, and he really knows the birds, knows the plants. Uh, And he also is on the autism spectrum. Hmm. So he has a really, I think, just special and unique perspective and way of moving through the world. And I I am just finding it absolutely Awesome. Check that out. I'll link to that um, for people to check out. Um, What's the best city you visited? In writing this book or ever? (laughs) I think just ever. (laughs) Oh, I have to say New York. Okay. New York City. Represent. Um, best national park you've ever visited? Uh, hmm. I love Glacier. Yeah. I lived in Montana for 10 years. Nice. Really special. And I think there's still barely a few glaciers left, so we'll see. Yeah. Wow. Um, who is someone you look up to and why? Um, I look up to my daughter, Annabelle, mm. she's 17 and she's got her act together and she's a lovely person. Mm. And, uh, her. That's awesome. That's so sweet. Um, lastly, where can people find out more about you, your work, anything you're up to these days? Are there some resources we could, um, guide them to? Oh, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I post a lot on Instagram and I try to, um, you know, have a lot of nature images up there. Um, I have a website, which is florencewilliams.com and you can find my audio work there as well as uh, a number of print stories that I've done. Perfect. Awesome. Events actually coming up. Sweet. Yeah. I saw you did an event at the Boulder bookstore a while back that I wish I had. Yes. Had no, been at, so I have to check the website. But even the yeah. first events are pretty fun. Yeah, totally. Well, Florence, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. This was such an honor to get to talk to you. And um, yeah, I just learned so much from your book. And I think this is such valuable work and necessary work. And um, yeah, I, I just thank you for, for all you're doing in the world. Thank you so much for the conversation, Alex. And um, don't forget to take your earbuds out. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. I've foregone the earbuds. No more earbuds. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Florence. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
All right. Well, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Florence Williams. I know I really did. I learned so much from her book, and I really appreciate her taking the time to chat. I think everyone can benefit from getting out into nature, and Florence has really done the hard work for us. She's given us the little things we can all do that have the greatest effect based on the science. If anyone has any recommendations or comments or suggestions, please reach out. And until then, go out into nature. Have some fun. Hope to see you out there. Cheers.